When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Justin Taylor. Justin Taylor is the author most recently of the memoir Writing with the Ghost, as well as three books of fiction, Flings, The Gospel of Anarchy, and Everything Here is the Best Thing Ever. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Book Forum, Bomb, and The Baffler, among other journals. He has taught creative writing in every time zone in the contiguous United States, including, but not limited to, stints in New York, Tennessee, New Hampshire, Mississippi, Indiana, Oregon, and Montana. He lives in Portland, Oregon. His next novel, Reboot, is forthcoming from Pantheon. Welcome, Justin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really exciting. I just finished your memoir, and it's incredible on so many levels. Um, I've categorized it as uh, three Fs, faith, father, and fairness, but I couldn't decide if I should change that to frankness. Um, But we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Right now, if you would be so kind as to read it to us, read some of it to us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to read from kind of near the beginning. This is from the chapter called the Indianapolis Notebook. Um, It does involve fathers and it is pretty frank. Um, (laughs) Thank you for playing along. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not not much faith to be had here, but you got to read to the Uh, end if you want. Read between the lines, people. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I'm going to read you a little bit of this, and I would tell you the things that you need to know, but I I don't know what they are. Whatever. Uh, Listening to this and you're hearing things you don't know what they are. I'm I'm sorry. They're in other parts of the book. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) It's a memoir about, among many other things, the death of Justin's father. There we go. In the months leading up to his suicide attempt, my father often spoke of feeling used up, exhausted, hopeless, tired of life. I understood my role as that of the dutiful refuter, arguing that things were different from how he saw them, or at least bound to change. Since his suicide attempt, I no longer argue. Now I hear him out, validate what he's feeling, commiserate to the degree that I'm able, and then try to shift the focus of the conversation toward concrete actions we might take to improve his situation. Usually there are none he will accept. His sisters could come by more often. We could hire someone, maybe. Maybe we could afford that, some version of it. Maybe we could figure out a way. But he doesn't want anyone in his space. He's very firm on this point. And it's true that I cannot imagine him allowing someone, me, my aunts, a stranger, to help him eat or dress or use the bathroom. He has never had an ounce of vanity, but he has always had a massive killing pride. Were he to lose his last vestige of self-sufficiency, his martyrdom to his own loneliness, would he even be him anymore? 
What is he after all, if not this willful self-destruction? Would ripping back this last veil of his autonomy, flimsy as it is, finally move things forward, force some kind of palliative change, or would it be the ultimate indignity, destroying him once and for all? Or would it not matter? Given that he's going to die sooner than later and of this illness, why not let him do it his own way, on his own terms, however deranged those terms may seem from the outside? In other words, to anyone who isn't him. I don't mean suicide. I mean letting him live his life, whatever's left of it, the way he wants to live it. But maybe I'm thinking about this in entirely wrong terms. Emotion, will, philosophy, belief. Perhaps I should be thinking in medical legal language. Indigent, disabled, power of attorney. At what point does my presumption of his right to self-determination become itself a form of negligence, of harm? And who says it will be sooner than later? How could I possibly know that? And when I say this illness, do I mean Parkinson's or depression? Do I mean poverty, capitalism, America? He is being killed by the healthcare system at least as much as by bad choices or bad genes. What name will I give his death if he gets one of his dizzy spells and falls down in the shower or on a flight of stairs? I am never more my father's son than in the way I turn these questions over. Point, counterpoint, subpoint, this way, that way, every possible argument, arguable, and endlessly. There are no such things as conclusions here, as decisions. When does a willingness to treat a complex issue with the depth and delicacy it warrants descend into Hamlet-like dithering? The form and fact of the question embody the spirit of what it is asking, thus rendering it unanswerable. The question is designed to forestall all action, but further consideration of the question. In this way, the question is answered. Time decides. Dad and I can talk for hours, in person or on the phone. Our conversations have always been marathons. Two hours as usual, three is not unheard of. We can talk about anything. He loves to tell old stories, to hear the minutest details of what's going on in my life. He taught me to be a storyteller and so I tell him stories, make epic and opera of some student I held after class, some conversation I had with an editor. In one way, these sessions are a kind of charity on my part. I know that all the good news I have to give him about my own career, however tentative or overblown, will carry him for days. But of course I enjoy the attention, the laser-focused love-hot attention. I can never tell him enough about myself and I am the hero of every story that I tell. I come to both crave and resent this dynamic, which I view as unchangeable, though it is of my own invention. It feels like childhood, 30, 32, 34 years old, answering the equivalent of what did you do in school today for the length of a feature film. I try to call him once a week, but a week becomes two weeks, three weeks. I tell myself I'm storing up stories for him, which is true, but also I'm exhausted. I'm sick of performing a happiness I don't always feel and sick of playing his sin eater. If I take a pause, the empty space in the conversation will be filled with his pain and sorrow, which neither of us wants. His depression is always fighting for a way in. A question like, how are you, can easily open the floodgates, send us down the dark hole of the divorce and his ruined life and ruined body, and how tired he is of everything until he is sobbing into the phone telling me how badly he wants to die. And he knows he shouldn't be telling me this and he's so sorry to burden me, but who else is there to tell? There is no one else, there's no one else to tell. Though of course he's saying all the same things to my sister. I didn't mean to bring all this up, but once I start, I don't know how to stop. Justin, can you please say something? Let's just talk about something, say something, change the... 
I submitted a story to the Paris Review. What does that mean? Nothing yet. It'll probably come to nothing, but they usually write me back pretty quickly. So I feel like I've got their attention. Well, that must be good, right? How many people can say that? Yeah, it's good. I just mean by the numbers, it's a long shot. So, but you're in the running. Yeah. So that's great then. And what's the Paris Review exactly? Do they pay well? Is it in French? You don't know French. I don't know French. <laughs> Justin, have you been in the Paris Review yet? Uh, kind of. Oh. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I interviewed Percival Everett for them. Uh, so I guess I, I had a byline. That means yes. I would, That's, I would that not counts. say that I have, I have had a, a piece in there in the way that I was shining on my father about it this time. <laughs> oh, they did excerpt this book on their website, so I guess that was something. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's yes. times two. So you've been in it twice. <laughs> Alex and I have been in it none. <laughs> Lindsay, fuck you. Um, <laughs> Justin, hearing you read, uh, I'm so glad that you read that piece um, because I think it is indicative of the tone and quality of a lot of the book. Um, and it reminded me of the way I first encountered this book, uh, which was the audio version, which you read. And I think that's a really special way to take, uh, to, to read this book is, is to listen to it because the quality, the openness, the frankness that Lindsay has already referred to the immediacy to the voice, um, is really well suited to being read by its author, you. And I realized I, even though I've asked you questions about this book for the last year or so, I think uh, I had never asked you about that process of recording the audio. And I, I would love to hear anything about that because it's such a wonderful recording and such a, a great way to encounter the book. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you so much uh, for all that, first of all. And to answer the question, um, yeah, I mean, I feel really lucky that I got to record the audio. Um, you know, the when I sold the book, uh, Random House bought the audio rights along with it, which had not been the case with any of my books before. The first two don't exist in audio at all. And the third one, Flings, we got uh, like an audio deal much later after the fact, and they were going to hire someone to read the stories. And basically when I found out they were going to hire an actor to, to read, um, I insisted that they would give me an audition. Because wow. Like, You're like, I am an actor. To read my stories, I want it to be me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I had to audition and, uh, and I won the audition, um, I guess. And, and so I had read Flings um, and, and I write by ear a lot of the time. I mean, I've read all this stuff out loud a million times um, before it ever gets submitted or published or anything. And that's not to say that I'm the greatest performer necessarily, but I know how I want it to sound. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most audiobooks I think are like, they're performative, but they're not quite performances in the same way that like, a, you know, a radio play or like a stage play is. So I feel like there's a little opening for me in there. And anyway, with this, um, Random House, you know, was gonna do the audio. And so having had the experience the last time around, I just said, well, I really wanna do it. And I feel even, more strongly because it's the memoir. And I was very lucky because they, they just asked if I had an audio sample. And I said, well, I read the whole last book. And they said, oh, okay, so I guess, I guess you could do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are capable. 
Yeah, but it was a weird thing. I mean, we recorded the audio. It was during the pandemic and it must have been pretty early pandemic days. It's been like right within the first couple months of lockdown or something. And so at first they didn't think they were going to be able to find a studio that was open. In Portland? In Portland. Yeah. And then then finally they found a place that would take us. And um, so it was just me and the sound engineer and the producer was in LA. He was remote in the headphones. And I just went in there every day for three or four days. And we just sat there with our masks on and I could take mine off once I was safely in the booth with the door shut and um, just read the entire book and tried to get through it, you know, as, as fast as possible. I mean, the real, the real limit is just your voice holding up, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was reading six hours a day or something. Um, just trying to be very careful with it, but I, I remain very grateful um, that I got to do it because I mean, this is just such an intimate book, obviously, like I knew exactly how I wanted this to sound, you know, and it felt like a much more emotional thing than just like, oh, I know how to read my own stories. Um, <laughs> and also, of course, they had to pay me again, which is which is not nothing. <laughs> right. And I loved in the in the piece that you read just now that we got to hear how you do your father's voice or you yes. do his inflections. Yeah, I really tried. I don't there are places where I'm, I'm sometimes more and sometimes less sure that I captured his voice like the way I hear it in my head. But I felt like there, and that's one of the reasons I like reading it. I, f- I feel like I really got, him. I got him. He really, he really did sound like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, as a mom, like thinking about my kids knowing me that well is daunting, but also so beautiful. I, I just feel like it's the best tribute to, to try to show him in every, every possible angle. It's kind of what I meant about frankness and fairness, because you hold yourself um, as close to honesty as you can possibly get. It feels like, it feels like a book where you co- emptied completely out Yeah. every single thought or emotion, um, or, uh, you know, dig or, um, you know, rage or love or tenderness. You got it in here. You gave us everything that you had of him. It feels like I, I'm, I'm not I saying that's true. I mean, I really appreciate you saying it. And that was definitely the goal. You know, he was a very complicated and difficult person, but someone with whom I was extremely close. Um, You know, we were never, there was no point at which we were not speaking. And I just had so much love, but also anger for him. And Mm -hmm. and so much of that was just rooted in not being able to understand why he made, you know, certain decisions and, and, and why things had turned out in certain ways. And you know, when he was alive and, and, you know, he was sick for a long time, but he died pretty unexpectedly, which was you know kind of at the center of this story. Um, so for a long time, I really put all that anger aside because there was this practical issue of his healthcare that just had to be dealt with. And we were mm-hmm. making long-term plans for, you know, an, an indigent dependent adult that I expected to be the primary caregiver and, you know, one of two primary financial supporters for, for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and then when he passed away, that all that just disappeared overnight. And, um, you know, I felt so conflicted. And I think I try to say this in a pretty straightforward way in the book. I mean, I would still rather have him here than not, um, you know, uh, but him not being here really changed just a lot of what was the horizon of possibility for me. And, and you know, I just didn't even know what to do with 
that open space and, and those resources that were no longer being drawn down upon in that way. And so I kind of wrote this into that emptiness, you know, to try mm-hmm. and fill it with something, I guess. And um, the more time I spent writing it, the less angry I was, because I think, I mean, you know, in some ways it felt very similar to writing fiction in that, like, the more time you spend with a character, the more you find yourself rooting for them, even if you've set them up as a kind mm-hmm. of bad guy. Like, it's easy to be mad at your dad, um, you know, for a lot of good or not so good reasons. Like, that's kind of what parents are for. Um, but to really sit down and try to understand a person's life, you know, why they did what they did, why what to you seemed like the worst possible option seemed to him in the moment, like the best or the only thing he could have done is, you know, is to have a real education in um, perspective and, and imaginative empathy. So mm-hmm. um, I think it made, I don't know, you know, it, it definitely, it was, it was, yeah, it changed me a lot to go through all this. When you say, you know, it felt like writing fiction in a way um, that's so striking to me because as I reread for tonight, um, the first section, the kind of turn at the first section where you realize that, uh, you know, your sister understood a, an email that was sent in a way that you would not have been able to because of the person you are and the person your dad was, the way the email was written, um, you know, interests that you had, so on and so forth. It seemed like that retrospective intelligence that you apply, um, the knowing was so rooted in not knowing in a way that really felt like a fictive, you know, impulse, like a fiction writer. Like if the, the, this memoir obviously is, it's nonfiction. It's a memoir. It's your life. It's your, it's you, it's your father, it's your family. But the, the way you go about learning and, and exposing what you did not know, exposing what you have come to learn feels so rooted in the making of fiction to me. Hmm. And that was just so it's, it's something that I don't think I would have been able to articulate on a first read, but the second time through, I just thought there's a kind of, um, I think there's a kind of humbling that happens to people who write fiction and are in it and stay in it. And it just felt like that's so who you are, Justin, and it's so how you understand the world. And it's so beautiful, man. Like coming going through again, I'm getting choked up right now just thinking about this book. Aww. This book means so much to me. What you were able, I mean, what Lindsay said is so true. You emptied yourself out. And this is not a question. I'm sorry I'm rambling at you, <laughs> but it's really, it's really oh, beautiful work. Okay. And and thank you. I mean, it's yeah, it's true. I mean, the you know, the book the opening chapter of the book, which was written years before anything else. And although it was edited and, you know, revised somewhat, it's, it's 80 or 85% um, the way that I sat down and wrote it in 2014 or 15. Um, And it was written, you know, out of a real sense of urgency um, for me, because I had experienced this really traumatic event, which was, you know, my father's suicide attempt. which had occurred and which I had also almost kind of missed um, because he had sent what turned out to be the note to my sister and not to me. And, and I had, she had forwarded it to me and I had 
first of all, misunderstood it when I read it and, and did not understand what it was. And then even afterwards, I think my first reaction was really very selfish, was to not understand why he had gone to her and not to me. Um, uh, because I thought we were closer than that. And, um, you know, we were close, but I think in the moment, you know, at that time, our relationship was pretty fractured and I had to really admit that to myself in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and then I just wanted to know why. I mean, I really just wanted to know, you know, trace how it had gotten to that place that he would have not written to both of us or, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, I, it's not really a jealous thing, but it's, you know, it's rooted in those very human emotions. Um, you know, even in times of great grief and tragedy and trauma, people are really capable of being as petty and grasping and venial and, and creaturely, you know, <laughs> as any other time. And I felt that so strongly in myself. Um, and I just, I don't know, I wanted to try and own it, I guess. And that was really, to me, like the central, it was this the central question, like, if he you know, you know, like, what, like, why didn't he choose me? Like, what was, you know, what was the narrative he was telling in which I was this kind of minor and not entirely trustworthy character? And that seemed to me the most important question to answer. I mean, for myself, but also to have any hope of repairing that relationship and continuing to, you know, to, to help him, which I was obviously still trying to do. Um, yeah. So. What, can you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned it, um, at certain points in the book, but, um, you know, as you started writing down certain things and knowing that you were going to write about him and about your life, what, can you talk about the, like the pivot from this is something personal I'm doing to this is going to be a memoir. Yeah. Um, which will have a life of its own apart from, apart from you, apart from your father. Yeah. I mean, I started writing about this and about him in part as a way of just creating a record because I felt like so much of the experience of dealing with his illness was not really having a narrative history of it because it would flare up, it would get better, it would get worse with the Parkinson's, but also the depression. And it was just like, we were always starting over from zero because nobody could remember what happened last time or you would feel like we beat it, it's gonna go away. And then we'd all be so shocked when you know these lifelong incurable problems like surprise rose up again uh-huh. um, so some, sometimes I was just trying to do something really practical the other part of it I guess is that you know as a fiction writer or just as a writer um, my entire mode of being in the world is to eventually process the you know the raw meat of experience into the sausage of, <laughs> of writing one <laughs> kind or other uh, <laughs> You know, every once a in a while, get a steak maybe, but it's, you know, it's mostly hot dogs. Um, yeah, it's a Frank. Yeah, and that's just what, <laughs> that is what you do, you know? And, and this felt absolutely unfictionalizable in part because I knew he would see through it if he read it, you know, and he was very sensitive to being portrayed in, in fiction. He was always worried I was gonna like use a story or a book or something to like rake him over the coals which I really would have never done. I mean, I'd made a kind of private deal with myself um, pretty early on that I was going to respect his his intense desire for privacy. Um, And so I knew I would never write about him directly or indirectly while he was alive. And so for this, I just kind of decided I'm allowed to write down whatever I want and I'm allowed to work on it 
as though it were a real manuscript. So I can edit, revise, do whatever I want, build, put all the work in, and I just won't do anything with it. And mm. so it had a place to live and I had a way to like give my little process, you know, to it. And that's really what I did with most of what's on the, in the first half of this book. Um, mm -hmm. And then after he died, I stopped writing entirely for about six or eight months, just for a lot of different reasons. I didn't care. I had other things going on and certainly did not think I would come back to this project because the main purpose it was designed to serve, which was like, you know, uh, a list and a bit of therapy, like those things were done. I didn't need those things anymore with regard to this. But then when I looked at the documents again, so it must've been like late 2018, like that fall sometimes, it was less than a year after he died, but close. And I just started reading what was there. I thought, you know, this is about half of a book and I can see the shape of the other half. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of before and after here, his death is sort of at the center of it. Like, I think I can see what this looks like. And then at that point, there was really just one question left to, to answer. And it was a very personal question, but it was basically like, what did I think about the terms of the promise I had made to myself to not publish writing about him? And mm -hmm. was that a transcendent promise that, you know, ramified through the ages even after his death or was it more conditional? And I had fulfilled the terms of it and allowed him to live the way he wanted unportrayed and private and nobody, you know, very few people knew he was sick and whatever. And so in that sense, had I actually done the duty and, and kind of fulfilled the terms of the contract and I was outside of it now. And it's like, you know, it's a self-serving answer in some ways. I don't know, that I made the right <laughs> decision, but I decided it was the second thing. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I can do this. Yeah. I felt very free to do what I wanted after that. Well, I think it's, it's, to me, it makes sense because it was a two way relationship. It was his relationship with you and your relationship with him and um, you were part of that, you know, and you could make decisions about it yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm excusing you. Thank you. Thank you Lindsay. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I, you mentioned writing this book changed you fundamentally. Um, I'd love to hear if that also means in your writing in in your work. I think so. I mean, I think for one thing, I would say I, I feel the nonfiction that I have published or even just written since completing this memoir is much more open-handed. I think I'm willing to go to much more emotional places um, without a lot of buildup and without a lot of armor. Um, so in that sense, I feel like all my writing kind of picks up where this left off because this book taught me how to lay it on the line that way. And I don't have to spend three years figuring out how to do that anymore. You can just start there. And, and maybe that's, you know, in some cases, maybe that's more called for than others. Um, you know, I don't know that every moment that you can bleed on the page means that you should, but it's, it's something to just know that, that, that a lot of times the best option is just to do the absolute simplest thing, which is to say what's true. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the earliest drafts of this, there was so much more um, like postmodern trickery and weird metatextual stuff. And I was really trying to armor myself against the reality of what I was doing mm. by trying to make it as aestheticized and whatever as, as possible. And eventually I just kind of decided 
or my agent also told me like, <laughs> this, this was not the way to do that. Like you can write a different book that way, but like, you know, if, you, if you're going to write a memoir, you're asking people, you're asking, you're asking an audience to pay attention to you in a kind of different way. Like I don't write fiction with an audience in mind. I don't know if you guys do, but to me, it's like an act of really sustained, like, isolation and aloneness and I hope eventually to find a readership but you know they can be there or not be there and that feels like it's totally out of my control it's not going to mm-hmm. change what I'm writing but with this I just feel like the memoir as a genre has an audience in mind from the moment it's conceived and if you are imagining those people like at a formal level and you're trying to court their attention then you kind of owe it to them to give them something that they can actually deal with um <laughs> and so that I don't know. That was that was a great um, insight for me, I guess. And then the other answer I would give you is I think that this memoir taught me how to write a novel. Like wow. my first novel was written in 2007, 8, and 9. Um, it has a very weird structure. It barely holds together as a novel. I think it's as much like a collection of stories as it is anything else. And I never thought I would write another because... I didn't really? have another big picture idea. Nobody particularly liked that one. The reviews of it almost wrecked my career. And I just oh. thought I'm not that kind of writer. I'm a, I'm a short story guy. And, and that's for the by and large still true. I mean, that's my first and deepest love and I'd rather be writing short stories than anything else. But this book, because I knew it had to have an overarching plot and structure, like it had to function as a single story that moved from A to Z and because I didn't have to figure out how to make all this shit up because it had all really happened. It meant that I could focus all my attention on editing, structure, chapters, relationship to the whole, texture, pacing, character development, like, you know, all that other stuff. Like, that's the stuff I live for. And I don't write novels because I can't be bothered to make up people in situations to hold it all. This is actually quite liberating <laughs> to not have to make anything up. It's just like, <laughs> oh, I can only do the, the parts of this that I care about. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think I would have written the novel I just finished if I hadn't written this first because I needed the training wheels of a real story just to figure out how to sustain a narrative for 200 pages instead of like pulling the plug after 17 and you know leaving you scratching your head. Feel my, dragged by that, but uh, that that actually was a very pointed <laughs> uh, attack that I support on Lindsay Hunter. Um, some of my favorite stuff in writing with the ghost, Justin, is the stuff that is about your kind of entry into making a writing life, and even just the the kind of early child acting experience and auditions and living in New York with your mom and going on all sorts of different, um, you know, casting calls or whatever. Um, Was it difficult to know how much of that to include or what purpose that served in the book? Because as a reader, it's, it's completely riveting because I feel like a lot of times you just don't get the the kind of level of detail that you gave of the the minute detail of how you really started to make a writing life and then also in in this book we get kind of the struggle on the back end of making a teaching life work uh, related to that and I just that almost feels as 
uh, as frank or as, as open, um, as a lot of the stuff having to do with your father, um, was it, was it difficult to, to modulate how much of that to include? Yeah, it was hard to figure that out. I mean, because by a certain logic, none of it really needed to be there. Um, but some of it I really wanted. Um, and so there was some back and forth on that. I mean, there was a point in the editorial process where the, the second chapter, which is called the belated introduction, um, it didn't really exist. Like pieces of it did in other parts of the book, but it really just went from that opening chapter with this suicide attempt to like this notebook in Indianapolis. And I forget if it was my agent or my editor, but somebody at some point said to me like, you're telling me this guy's life story, but you haven't introduced him yet. We don't know who he is. And so it was actually the last thing that I wrote. And, and the idea was to do like basically a capsule biography of my father and that I would start from his birth and try to talk about his growing up and then, you know, move through his early adulthood and like into where my mom enters the picture and then where I enter the picture and just kind of bring everyone up to speed. You know, I mean, it's essentially like, you know, it's, it's like kind of a long flashback. Like it's almost like a cheap move, you know, like the book starts with this 10 pages of just like horror and emotional trauma and near death and all this. And then there's the kind of Zach Morris moment. You're probably wondering how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then it jumps back like literally 50 years um, and tells the story, but it, I don't know, it made sense. And it was, it's like that time slip was one of the few little like aesthetic structural tricks that I allowed myself to keep. Cause I just really liked how it all functioned. And, and so the rule with that was like, as with the child acting, which is what you're asking about, like that stuff wound up being in there because it was, I was trying to give a sense of like what that all looked and felt like, both from my perspective and his, but mm. I had to keep it really, really tight because it's a chapter that's about something else. And that was already kind of too long for what it was doing and where it was. So there was like some pretty real limits. Um, the teaching stuff came up much later, mostly because, you know, as, you know, you know this, but if you know, people read the book, they'll see. I, I had a student I was pretty close with who overdosed and died a year after he finished his undergrad degree at, um, at Pratt. And through the course of that loss, um, I became pretty close with his family and a couple other students from his cohort in particular. And I felt very strongly as I was writing this story that that story was part of it and I didn't know exactly why. And so I kept writing about him and about events that were around his death and these other things. And people just kept asking me like, what is this doing here? And I didn't know how to explain it. Um, and so I just kept pushing because that was that was one of the cases where they kept saying like, you can take this stuff out. And I said, no, I can't, you know, we can take out X and Y, but this is, this is gonna stay. And so what I eventually came around to was kind of what you were talking about that I think one of the biggest things my father taught me uh, through his actions and behavior, not something I ever sat down and said was just to take young people very seriously and if they show up in your life, you just treat them as close to equals as you possibly can and mentor them and give them whatever they need. And he was like that with my friends. He was like that with teams that he coached. Um, and it was really like the flip side to his hot-headed, uh, like anger prone streak. Like if, if you could get his attention, he would give you 
all of it. I mean, just so far above and beyond. And, and he, you could have been his best friend or he met you yesterday. He didn't care. And I don't know that I have quite that level in me, but I do think some of that feels right. And I do tend to keep in touch with a lot of former students, probably more than, than most other people who do what I do. Um, Cause I just like hearing from them and I like taking the long bet on, on people and, and seeing where they end up. And so I think making that connection is like, and to figure out how to say it, invited me to include Eli's story and some of that other stuff that I felt so strongly. And in, in a book that is so committed to really, you know, showing my father, a lot of times in pretty unflattering lights, I thought this was a real portrait of him at his absolute best, you know, what he had done for me, something he had taught me and how I feel like part of my best self, you know, to whatever degree it exists, comes out of having taken those lessons from him. And I just didn't know how to say all that. And it, it took a while. And so that was, that was why the teaching stuff was in there. And, and that's, you know, some of the faith stuff too. I mean, a lot of the Judaism stuff was, was tied up with that. Um, you know, writing about like not wanting to have a bar mitzvah and having those kind of fights <laughs> with him. Um, and I do think, you know, he was right about, he was right about that. Um, that's one of those things you don't know when you're, when you're 13, um, you know, why you memorize all those Jewish prayers you don't give a shit about. And, and the answer is <laughs> one day you'll be 37 and, and standing at, you know, somebody's graveside and you'll want to be able to say them. And that's, <sighs> that's just it. Um, you know, and, and he knew that and I didn't. Um, and I really wanted to get that in there. Some of the most beautiful um, moments in the book have to do with you thinking about the relationship between student and professor. Um, and it's related to everything that you're saying, you know, related to what you learned from your father, um, who in the end, as a father seems pretty aspirational, in my opinion, <laughs> um, the deep listening that he granted you and the, mm. the, the way that he challenged you and, um, and yeah, and treated you like an equal. Um, but I would love to hear from you what, what you think that was sort of student professor relationship that that role of professor has done for your work? What, how, what has it done for your practice, for your writing? I mean, I think it's, I think it's done a lot, you know? I mean, there's, there's different kinds of writers out there and I think some of them teach only grudgingly. Um, and because, you know, <laughs> it's the only way they can think to make money um, without having to clock in somewhere, you know, every day. And I mean, there's definitely a part of that. That's why I started doing it. I was fresh out of grad school and someone gave me a remedial English class at a small college in Midtown. And I just took it because it was the only thing on offer. And it, it took a few years to figure out that teaching, especially teaching creative writing is a parallel vocation to writing creative writing. And they're related and one kind of justifies, you know, your expertise so-called that allows you to do the other, but they're really pretty separate things. Um, and a lot of, people teach, you know, who maybe shouldn't or wish they didn't have to. And, you know, they can feel like it's a pretty big drain on their creative resources, on their time. And I just never really felt that way. I mean, particularly again, once I got out of the like grade 50 papers over the weekend trenches and got into, you know, teach the short story, read, you know, help someone with their novel thesis, you know, whatever. Um, I get a lot of energy from that. I mean, I really love it, you know, designing, classes um, gives me a reason to revisit my favorite books and pass them on to other people. And, and especially now, you know, I'll be 40 uh, next week. 
Um, but I've been doing this since I'm 25 and, and over time watching the way that certain books like hold up or don't, um, you know, like there was a point in the late 2000s when I stopped teaching Jesus Son, a book that I loved desperately uh, because everybody else was also teaching it. And I was mm -hmm. meeting sophomores that had already had it thrown at them three times. And I just thought this doesn't need to happen. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like we can read something else. Um, and now we're in a moment where if I mention Jesus Son, a lot, most of my students will not have read it. Um, it's, it's so out of vogue that it feels really fresh again. Yeah. And, and that's been an interest, you know, maybe not at every school, but, but, you know, at, at some of the ones where I've been. And so it's interesting to watch those cycles and to, you know, to really teach a book is to really have to understand it in a deep way. And you learn pretty quickly that some books that you liked and thought you loved are not actually capable of standing up to hmm. the level of scrutiny that well, you have to give if you're going to lecture on something for like two or three weeks running. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's interesting too. I mean, I, it's a pretty short list of like books that I have found to be more or less inexhaustible. I mean, like Danielle Evans for a story collection. Um, I have taught those stories so many times. I could probably do it without the book in front of me. And there's always something new to say. There's always some great, amazing idea um, that, that she's putting across or that a student's picking up on. And that you can also just teach like everything about craft and point of view. And, you know, from that, Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping is another one um, that can be a tough sell for undergrads. It's not a flashy book, um, but I could teach that book twice a year from now until the end of time and probably never hit the bottom of it. Other things, you know, you hit the bottom of them and you just, you just go, okay, <laughs> enough of this. <laughs> I'll let it rest. I don't know if I'm going to make it back. Um, so anyway, it was a long kind of circuitous answer to your question, but all I can say is that for me personally, um, I just gain a lot from it. I feel like I, you know, I feel like I'm being helpful and that's a good feeling, but I just think I personally benefit at least as much as whatever instruction or support I'm providing to students. And it's really fun, you know, over the years, like, again, you know, now I'm in this long enough now that I've watched a lot of people grow up and some of them have had books um, that have, you know, blown up and done better than mine. Some of them became editors. Some of them are doing other things. Some of them have not had their breakthrough yet. They're just people I like and care about who are doing good writing and are still, you know, in the trenches every day. And I, and I talk to, and it's always cool. Cause it's not, it's not always the people you think it's going to be who break biggest or break first. Um, and so you just have to kind of go in with the understanding that you're not there to pick favorites or bet on the horse race. You know, you're there because you care about these people and they care about the same things that you do. Um, and everything else is just, you know, the lottery basically. Um, but it's, it's exciting. You know, it's exciting when the kids do cool stuff. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to name check any of them because I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to take credit for, for their success. <laughs> certainly not the case, you know what I mean? <laughs> they got there one way or the other, but it's, but it's nice to think that you got to be the one who helped. I feel like one of my, just, well, not I feel like, I know. One of my favorite qualities that you have, Justin, is just, you love this shit. Like, you absolutely, it just is so obvious how much care you put into your teaching, you put into your interaction with your students. It's, it's all over this book in particular. Um, 
And it's so refreshing to hear that attitude coming from people teaching creative writing, because I feel like a lot of, a lot of the stuff you see online or whatever it may be is just moaning. And you're a person who realizes how special it is and truly the ability it has to change lives and uh, have some pretty beautiful results. And that is a unique quality. Honestly, I feel like a lot of people don't realize how cool it is to get to do that for a life. Not that you haven't worked your ass off to have the opportunities you've had, but it's really special. So thank you for, I I feel really lucky to get to do this and it's, you know, but it's true. I mean, it's also been, about as precarious as it right. as it can be. You know, when I lived in New York, it was full-time adjuncting and just every semester you make the same five phone calls and hope that at least two call you back or you're sunk. And, you know, three would be great. You'd be doing well. And you just hope to Christ four don't call because you really don't have that kind of time, but you absolutely can't say no, you know? Oh, and it was just a lot of, you know, it was, it was gambling. And then after we left New York, you know, my wife and I moved to Portland. She's the director of the Portland Book Festival. And that's what brought us out there. Um, there was really no work to be had in Portland. And I was not quite at a place where I was writing, you know, publishing in such a way as to support myself full time or even half time, frankly. I mean, it was between books. I was not selling many stories and it was really rough. It was hard. Um, and so that's why I ended up taking, you know, a lot of these visiting writer gigs where I could get them. I mean, for, you know, huge, huge swaths of the memoir, I was in Indianapolis at Butler, and then I was at University of Southern Mississippi for nine months. And, you know, those are good jobs to have. And I feel lucky to have been in those places. And, and in some cases, you know, those, that too is, you know, is a privilege to be asked and to get to do it. But it was also like, you know, I don't think I quite spelled this out, but those were, you know, I spent several years um, of the beginning of my marriage, like not living at home, you know, just in weird little rental apartments in college towns where I was, you know, the youngest person on the faculty, but 10 10 years older than anyone I might've gone to have a beer with. And just like in this very interstitial, you know, kind of nowhere space. And, um, you know, I liked it well enough that I kept doing it. Um, But man, it's, it's, it was weird. And you really got to watch your ass uh, when you're just out there by yourself like that for that much time. Cause you spend a lot of time in your own head and it's, you know, it's real easy to just knock down a bottle of wine every night with dinner or two. And it's just, it's a lot of self-regulation that it wears on you, you know? And so it's not something I would, I feel lucky to have done it, but it's not something I would advise just anyone to do. And, and the truth is if the Academy were, in a better place and like not in the process of proletarianizing itself. Um, you know, me and all the other career adjuncts would have real jobs somewhere and we would probably live in smaller towns, but we would have like owned houses younger and had families. And so, you know, it's, it's, it is like, it is a function of this completely fucked up economy in so many ways. And you try to make the best of it. And, you know, I've tried to make an artistic life out of it, but you do just look around sometimes and go like, I haven't had health insurance through a job that I held ever. Oh, that's in my life. fucking insane. <laughs> that's really so insane. 
but yeah and you know and some of it too is like I mean you know you guys both have have kids and you know my wife and I don't have kids and um you know that's a decision that we made pretty early on and and you know we've stuck with it and the longer we do it the more the longer we stick with it the longer it seems like we're going to um and that has obviously opened up a lot of possibilities as far as like what we can each do you know what's possible for our financial planning um and that's really what allowed a lot of this to happen i mean if i had two or three at home it would be a very different set of circumstances you know for for obvious reasons um but even at that uh it's yeah i don't know it's it's just it's just strange you know and um as someone who genuinely likes young people um and being around them even even though i'm not inclined to raise one of my own um the teaching ends up being you know fulfilling a, a scratching that itch for me um it's not the same as parenting and i think it's a very dangerous thing to convince yourself that it is uh because i've seen people make that mistake like you're not these people's father um they have fathers you know but you're something um there's there's a role for you there and if if you're someone who is interested in playing that role and isn't going home to do it for 10 hours after doing it on campus for three hours, then I think it becomes much easier to say like, let's take the students for coffee. Let's spend the extra hour in the office, you know, cause there's, what am I gonna do when I get home? I'm gonna play Nintendo, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what are you playing on Nintendo? I did not bring the Nintendo to Swanee. There's, there's just too much going on yeah. right now. I was playing Diablo three before I left, but I didn't really like it. I don't think I'm gonna stick with it. My boys and husband just started playing the new Ninja Turtles. Mm. on the Ooh. switch yeah it's quite enjoyable it looks like the old ninja turtles yeah. game though mm-hmm. it's very remember, old school do you remember the old ninja turtles game when you would the stub bombs. your toe they would go my toe my toe yes. no oh my god i don't remember that <laughs> well the main one i remember is turtles in time the arcade yeah. one yeah so good so good so good me and my cousins beat that on 20 dollars a quarters one time holy yeah. shit my, that seems like triumph. a florida moment actually it was in minnesota <laughs> Mm, How we, dare uh, you? Let's go back. Let's edit that. That was definitely in Orlando. Are <laughs> As you guys? If we could have gone to the arcade. Are you guys from a similar part of Florida? I'm from Orlando, around there. Mm, I'm from Miami, dude. So um, no, not really. But I really appreciated in the book how you how you acknowledge how there's only parts of Florida that are southern, there's, <laughs> and the rest of it from below Orlando down is considered New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my in-laws are in pensacola and uh when Amanda and i first started dating she told her dad she was finally dating a southern boy and he said oh where's where's he from and she said miami so that didn't count <laughs> <laughs> definitely not <laughs> yeah and you the scholarship you got was at bright futures yeah that's the one i got too yeah no way. Uh, yeah remember, remember when the state functioned I know. I know. I remember my dad said, if you can get a scholarship to college, I'll, I'll pay for your car. And so I did that. Yeah. He's the only one in my family to do. It. What did you have I mean, to do to get the scholarship? So Alex, Alex wouldn't know this and, and he can, he can stand in for everyone out there in, in radio land. But for many years, Florida had, I don't know if they still have it, a scholarship that was funded by the state lottery. It was called Bright Futures. And basically if you had decent grades in a public high school, you could go depending exactly what your GPA was, either for absolutely free or for 75% scholarship or for 50% scholarship to any public school in the state. If you what? could get it. Yeah. And, and the, 
And the cutoff for full ride was not that high. It might've been like a three, five or something. I mean, you needed to be oh working. God. You had to so do yeah, like so, so, so many a, volunteer hours as well. That's amazing though. Yeah. It was really incredible. And so for me, like at the, you know, at that time, I mean, I didn't know this really then, but you know, my parents were broke. Um, and my mom was like, Oh, just apply to Brown and we'll find the loan money and we'll figure it out. And my dad was like, live at home and go to FAU, save up your money. <laughs> And those both seemed like bad ideas to me. But yeah, I mean, the state scholarship program is what got me out of my parents' house, which was the most important thing to me at that time. And it got me to University of Florida, which was such a huge school that it felt like you could find your own little mini school inside it. And right. that's really what I did. I mean, you know, the English department there is bigger than some liberal arts colleges. And it had everything in it from Shakespeare to digital theory to creative writing, you know. And so to I mean, be some amazing there, professors, right? I mean, like Gainesville had some like legends there, didn't yeah, they? It was it was Patrick Powell and David Levitt when I got there. And <laughs> then they David had brought in Jill Cement um about midway through my time, and I ended up working with her the most. I took her workshop a couple of times, and she was the one who really pushed me to go to New York. She just felt very strongly like if you can get there, you'll figure it out. And you know, I did the thing that they now say you're not supposed to do, which is like, I borrowed a shitload of money for grad school. I owed mm -hmm. so much when I graduated because I borrowed for the degree and I borrowed to live on. And I went to the new school um, really for just a couple of reasons. One, Jill had said to go there because she used to teach there and she like gave me the name of someone to talk to. And two, because even though the new school is a very expensive private institution, they co-signed all my loans. Uh, and my mm. parents were not in a position to co-sign as my guarantor. They didn't have the credit. Um, and so if I'd been a little cannier and waited, who knows, you know, maybe I would have gotten a full ride somewhere. Maybe I would have done something different. But I, at the time, it felt like the alternative was move back in with the folks who are at this point in Nashville um, and try to get my old job at Best Buy back. I mean, that was the other option. And I just didn't want to do that. And so I felt like borrowing all that money for school and to live on was like just buying time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I just... I had seen a little bit of New York when I'd been an intern and what I'd come to understand was that, you know, rich people had a different relationship to time than I did because they had more of it than I knew what to do with. And that's why they were sitting around in coffee shops all day writing their opuses while I was interning at, you know, the magazine for $150 a week. And so I just thought if, if I buy the time, I can have two years to figure out how to use it and like figure out what a life like this actually looks like. And it was a pretty heavy tax to pay. I spent 15 years paying those loans off, but nobody else was going to teach me or do it for me, you know? Mm. So if it hadn't been for Bright Futures, I mean, this is like coming back to the Marxist, you know, thing, like when we had a functioning welfare state to a certain degree and you could go to public college for free, you could graduate debt-free with a big stupid dream. Like I want to borrow $70,000 and be a dilettante in New York city um, <laughs> and just do it because that wasn't getting added on to the 60,000 that you already owed whoever, you know? So anyway, thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, yeah, this was awesome. I had some more things, but, but I just felt like it would make this like an hour and a half long. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm furious, but yeah. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, I thrive on honesty. <clears throat> oh my God. Do you? Yes. What does that mean? I, I'm, I always, I feel like I always say what I'm thinking. Uh-huh. And I like when people do that as well. I feel like I never say what I'm thinking. Is that true? That's not true. Oh my God, Alex. I feel like I'm usually just lying. And most people who know me are like, eh, you're probably just lying. <laughs> One of the best parts in this episode was when you were like, Justin, you just seem to love this shit. <laughs> what is wrong? I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just like didn't really have a filter because Justin's a buddy and I'm like, I don't know. I don't really, I didn't feel any pressure to sound smart. So I was no, just like, I'm just going to talk. So- it was perfect. No. And I reminded me of this. My dad often, my dad often will say to me like, yeah, I don't know. It's the damnedest thing. You and your brother and sister, like you just really seem to enjoy being parents. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, so you did it. <laughs> like, uh, he's like, I'm just trying to break even. That's right. Oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah. You just, you just seem to like it. I don't, I don't get it. Oh, I don't relate. <laughs> Um, but I, I love that book mm-hmm. and, you know, I think there are certain books you read and maybe they're from a buddy or whatever. So you're like, you're like predisposed to like it, but I feel like this book is just, it's special. I really honestly feel like the way you described it, I think is better than anything I'd come up with. Just, he really emptied himself out just like it's all there. And uh, yeah, because, you know, even even in the moment, you're always telling yourself stories or trying to like, um, like bend it in a mm-hmm. positive way or, right. or if you're angry, bend it in a negative way. And so if he ever catches himself doing that, he calls it out. Yes. He says what, you know, it's a big part of the book is him yeah. kind of taking ownership for things that I mean, and I think a lot of cases it's like no one would fault him for not taking ownership of right. these things. Right. That's the part there where I'm like, God damn, I could never write a book like this because you would, <laughs> I'm just not willing to look at myself in that way, to be honest. Well, yeah, he's sitting in the extreme discomfort and pain and he's forcing himself to sit there right. and look around and say what he sees and what he thinks. I yes. forgot. I wanted to bring up the, the stuff with him which I oh yeah yeah oh so poignant and so yes. devastating his dad yes. has a storage locker full of what they call the stuff which is just right. you know the normal stuff that you everyone has in their everyone house has it yeah that you're you know your kids thousands of drawings and yeah don't get rid toys, of it old broken mugs mm-hmm. you know he has like a dvd player that for some reason you know and and just stuff and from Justin's perspective, and it's weird to talk about it this way because these are real people, but you know, a lot of it's garbage and him and his sister didn't have any use for it. They didn't want it. But from his father's perspective, it's the tangible evidence of their lives. You know, it's, and, and as a parent, I, I just crumble thinking about that because we've all come across, you know, something that your kids don't care about anymore. Right. Like my kids used to love to dress up in costumes, like those Melissa Mm -hmm. and Doug firefighter costumes or police oh, yeah. costume or whatever mm-hmm. they loved it and and you know parker who likes to think of himself as an adult would um just you know sidle up and he'd be in full spaceman costume you know just oh, yeah so precious and and one day they just 
I realized they didn't do that anymore. And, you know, it's, it's, if you're, if you're trying to hold on to your life by holding on to the stuff, the stuff just grows and grows and grows and grows. It becomes unwieldy. It becomes hard to, you know, you can't take it with you. Um, but, but I just found that so beautiful because it was his father remembering and he has a line in the book where he says the proof of what we lost was proof of what we missed or what we were missing or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, um, his father at the end of his life was really sick and, and hard to, to communicate with. Um, and, but then when they looked at pictures of him from when they were younger and they saw how it used to be mm-hmm. like, that was hard, but it was also beautiful. Yeah. He said it so much better, but no, but yeah. you know, as town says, you know, <laughs> do you have a, do you personally have a hard time getting rid of stuff? Oh, I used to, Ben and I used to be terrible. Like your everything. own stuff even? Yeah. Well, yeah, everything with like Ben and I used to sentimental value everything mm-hmm. and we would get like superstitious about it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I can't throw that, that out because whatever, you know, mm-hmm. now that we have three kids, it feels so good to throw things out. Yeah. <laughs> ben said oh, it can, shit. Ben's right there. It just came down. Benny's Throw right there. Him. He just, yeah, he's about to play some animal crossing, I think. Oh, oh maybe yeah. Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah. I, and that's because you realize like a lot of it, is meaningless and it's just right. broken crap and your house is overflowing yeah you know what about you i i love to get rid of shit it's the best feeling specifically clothing yeah i like my ideal would be to have like six shirts and two <laughs> pairs of pants which i'm not far off but uh yeah and i'm starting to purge books which feels even better yeah you gotta hit up all those little libraries yeah, or just throw them in the fucking trash. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, right or that? <laughs> right, or you know, give them to a cherished neighbor. A what neighbor? Cherished was the word I used. Oh, cherished, cherished. I mean, a it's not an neighbor. honest word. It's it's just it's a word, but uh, yeah. Anyway, um. I think we did it. We did, we did it. a good job. Yep. And uh, go go do your Hulu. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? We're actually watching Barry on HBO now. Okay. You know what? I watched what? the first season of that and it, I loved it. And I've yes. heard it got better and better, but I, I'm not going to watch any more of it. Why? Because I just decided no more TV. I don't know. I just want to watch sports. Okay. I I'm support gonna, you. I'm going to die. And then what am I going to say? Like, okay, I got through three seasons of Barry and now I'm dead. <laughs> you're not going to say anything. Cause you're going to be dead. Good point. I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, go do that and I'll go do the other thing. All right. Bye. Bye. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter music by Max loop. Yeah, yeah.